Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If everyone could please stand. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord God, pour your blessings upon us this evening. Help us to know the faith, to live the faith, and to share the faith. Make us apostles and a part of the new evangelization. And may the seeds tonight that we study of our Catholic faith bear fruit in our life and the life of the church throughout the world. Through Christ our Lord, amen. St. Ambrose, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much, Father. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad to see you all here. Isn't it a gorgeous night? My name is Melanie Baker. I'm the Associate Director of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Deacon Sabatino is away at a national conference on the new evangelization. So I'm filling in for him tonight. Actually, I spoke with him this afternoon. He's having a great time meeting all sorts of wonderful people. They actually have over eight bishops at that conference, including two archbishops from, I think, Los Angeles and San Francisco, Bishop Morlino is obviously there. He's very excited about coming to speak for us in a few weeks. And while we were talking, Deacon Sabatino mentioned that the bishops held a panel discussion on the new evangelization. And the participants were offered the opportunity to ask questions of the bishops. And one of the questions asked was, what is the single greatest crisis facing the Catholic Church in America today? And the answer was unanimous. And it was the lack of education for adults in our church. Not only that, the Institute of Catholic Culture was the only nonprofit represented out of a sea of different organizations actually doing that evangelization and education. Thank you. Yeah. As many of you know, I became Catholic obviously due to the work of the Holy Spirit, working through the Institute of Catholic Culture. I and so many like myself are so grateful to be a part of this organization and to be able to uh, learn our Catholic faith in all of its depth and wisdom. And with that, we're going to be learning a bit more tonight. And thank you so much, Professor Riley, for coming back. Please join me in welcoming Professor Riley. Thank you. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you again, Father Fisher, for hosting this this evening. Well, it's interesting because last um, week my wife listened to some of the streaming audio and said, don't you depress these people again this weekend. <laughs> and several people spoke to me before we began this evening asking me if I had anything more positive to say. <laughs> There's plenty of red wine in the back of the room. So I will start out with um, something along those lines. Then we'll do a quick recap 
of some of what we went over last week and then delve into new material, including, I know you've been held in suspense, waiting for an exegesis of the doctrinal note on Catholics and public life. And, <laughs> in fact, um, I'm sure you'll be so anxious to read it that Melanie is going to post the link to the Vatican documents where you'll be able to find that. Now, hear from the Ratzinger report from then Cardinal Ratzinger. Of course, he repeats the very thing we began with last week, that the role of the church in any age is to direct our gaze to God, to direct our gaze to the crucifix, and not only to direct our gaze there, but also to get up on it and to suffer with Christ. So the then Cardinal Ratzinger said, the place of the church on earth can only be near the cross. He goes on to say, the Christian knows that history is already saved. That's the good news. The Lord of history. Christ is the Lord of history. History is already saved. That therefore the outcome in the end will be positive. We do not know through which circumstances and reverses we shall arrive at that great finale. We know that the powers of darkness will not prevail over the church. But we do not know under what conditions that will transpire, unquote. That's pretty good news. I was reflecting again on a question that was asked last week. It was a very good question. Maybe I scared that person away. I'm surprised how many of you have come back for a second <laughs> night of Irish pessimism. He said, what about the Our Father? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So oughtn't we to be building his kingdom here? And I tried to answer in what sense we are meant to do that, but also emphasizing our Lord's answer, my kingdom is not of this world, and that we mustn't obscure the distinction between the transcendent and the terrestrial, which was forecast in that great statement of Socrates in Plato's Republic about the heavenly city that was above any earthly city, by whose lights he would live from now on, and he would orient his soul to that heavenly city which had the transcendent standard of justice, which applied to all men everywhere and at all times. Clearly, clearly a vision in terms of reason by one of the greatest philosophers of what we would later be taught in the Revelation from St. Paul, that as you well know, we have our true citizenship in heaven and the development of that by St. Augustine into the city of God and the city of man. And we also went over the configuration of the state before Christ as a divine state, as that distinction did not exist between the transcendent and the terrestrial in the ancient mind. In these cosmological empires of pharaohs and kings, the state, everything was Caesar's because the state was divine. It was Christianity that de-divinized the state that limited politics and made politics possible. Christianity begins, said at that time Cardinal Ratzinger, not with a revolutionary, but with a martyr. My kingdom is not of this world. 
As Pope, he took up that theme again and said, what we hope for as Christians should not be confused with what we can achieve through political action. Quote, wherever politics tries to be redemptive, wherever politics tries to be redemptive, it is promising too much. Where it wishes to do the work of God, it becomes not divine, but demonic. If politics usurps the spiritual order, the order of the soul, and tries to place it in the political order, the giant maw of the death camps opens, and the human slaughter in the name of the perfection of humanity begins. This is what Benedict was referring to. Now, the good side of that, Father Shaw refers to in this way. The constitutional effect of revelation is the limited state. The very idea of constitutional government, which arose in the Middle Ages, is a product of this understanding of the political, which is only possible within Christianity, which, as I said, de-divinized the state. You know, the way in which Christ solved that problem that otherwise the state is tempted to undertake, we heard again in Mass today, in the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, you who take away the sins of the world. What? You take away the sins of the world. A mystery, a huge mystery presented to us but a great problem solved. The great problem with which men and in every political order are faced is sin and death. And the only solution to that problem is on the cross. And the only wound that the earth has ever received is the empty tomb that he left in the great words of Archbishop Sheen. How could man have possibly imagined or hoped for or fathomed a suffering God? Yet that is what was revealed to us. I'm sure at some time in your life, through your own suffering, through the suffering of someone you loved, most particularly if you have ever witnessed the suffering of innocence, that you have not cried out in your heart, where is he? Where's God? And then you remember, oh, oh, there he is on the cross, suffering for us, suffering with us. So the worst thing has already happened. The worst thing that could possibly happen has already happened. Innocence itself was crucified. And in his resurrection, Christ overcame that death and therefore solved that problem, which then relieves politics of the temptation to undertake a solution to it itself and construct some fabricated perfection of man at which it will invariably fail. Now, let me say some other things about the role of the church from some great uh, theologians and teachers. Here's one from Father Romano Guardini. If any of you have ever heard of him, he had great influence on Benedict XVI. About the purpose of the church, he said, she must steadily hold out to man the final verities, the ultimate image of perfection, 
the most fundamental principles of value and must not permit herself to be confused by any passion, by any alteration of sentiment, by any trick of self-seeking, unquote. To which then Cardinal Ratzinger specifically responded to this remark. We must not drown the requirements and compromise until they gradually disappear from view. The church is not there in order to discover the most acceptable form of compromise, but to hold out to people without distortion the whole magnitude of God's word. Father Guardini added, the church always liberates. The church always liberates those who live in her company from the power of the contemporary world and puts them in touch with enduring standards. The church is what enables us to begin to live by the lights of that heavenly city and to order our souls to it and not to any city in which we live because we may be disenfranchised here as, as Catholics someday. So what? Our true citizenship is in that other kingdom. Guardini goes on to say, the strange thing is, as one is more skeptical, no one has more inward independence over against what everyone says than the person who truly lives with the church, unquote. In a 1932 novel, the office Joseph Roth, reflecting upon the decline and collapse of the Habsburg Empire, wrote a novel called The Radetzky March. In it, he writes, in this decaying world, the Roman Catholic Church is the only thing left to give shape to life, to help life keep its shape. Yes, we could even say that she dispenses shape, unquote. Not bad for a novelist. I mean, the shape is already there in our nature, but it's the church through its teaching that preserves the truth, the architectural plan of that shape, and preserves it through declining times. Cardinal Biffy put this pithily, that which is eternal is not only more important, but is in fact more incisively contemporary than that which is merely contemporary. And that which is substantial and absolute is capable of influencing history more effectively than that which is, above all, relative to present circumstances. Now, last week I probably said something else that, which wasn't too cheery, which I said the role of the church is to be hated. And I was interested to find in my reading since last week a statement that confirmed this in a very enriching way from Pope Francis I. In the light of which we can say, if we're not hated, we must be doing something wrong. Take that as a litmus test. Here's what the Pope said. Quote, the way of the Christians is the way of Jesus. If we want to be followers of Jesus, there is no other way, none other than that which he indicated to us. And one of the consequences of this is hatred. It is the hatred of the world and also of the prince of this world. The world would love that which belongs to it. But Jesus tells us, I have chosen you from the world. It was precisely he who rescued us from the world who chose us, pure grace. With his death, his resurrection, he redeemed us from the power of the world, from the power of the devil, from the power of the prince of this world. The origin of the hate we experience then is this, 
that we are saved. It is that prince who does not want that we should have been saved, who hates. I think that's pretty positive myself. I don't know what, if that's distressing, but he goes on. There are many persecuted Christian communities in the world. Indeed, there are more persecuted communities in this time than in the early days. Today, right now, in this day and in this hour, because the spirit of the world hates. Now, this comes, as, as we just mentioned from Pope Benedict, about compromise. The, the role of the church in the world is not to compromise these fundamental truths and teachings. And so says Pope Francis, quote, There can be no dialogue with the prince of this world. Let this be clear. Today, dialogue is necessary among us humans. It is necessary for peace. But with that prince, it is impossible to dialogue. One can only respond with the word of God who defends us, for the world hates us just as it did with Jesus. So, speaking of the prince of this world, only look, he will say, just do this one small little scam. It's a small matter, nothing really. Let's let in openly avowed homosexual Boy Scouts. What? That's a little thing. Shouldn't every young boy be able to be a scout? And if he's an open declared homosexual, why should he not have the advantage of scouting? That's a little thing, isn't it? And then at 18, we can tell him he can no longer do it because I don't, I don't know why, but that would be our new compromise. It's a little one, right? And so he begins to lead us on a road that is slightly off. This is a pious lie. Do it, do it, do it. There's no problem. And it begins little by little always, no? Then he says, but you're so good. You're a good person. You get away with it. It's flattering. And he softens us by flattery, and then we fall into the trap. Today, continued Pope Francis, Jesus reminds us of this hatred that the world has against us, against the followers of Jesus. That's a badge of which we should be proud because it shows we're not in dialogue with a certain power. Now, let's get more into the role of the Catholic in politics today. What the church teaches us that role should be. And some of the things I will suggest to you that the church ought not to be doing, has been doing for some time, and that I believe is squandering its authority and perhaps taking its time from what it ought really to be doing, things in which it has so palpably failed, as we know from Melanie's open remarks about the need even for catechesis in adults today. Let's get on to law. If you're a Catholic in politics, you're invariably going to deal with law. What is law? Law is invariably moral, inescapably moral, quintessentially moral. And the rhetoric of any political debate will immediately reveal to you this truth. Because every politician, every debate in Congress or down in Richmond will be in terms of making something better or worse. We can't do that. It'll make it worse. We need to do this because it'll make it better. Whether we're talking about health care, highway safety, education. But better and worse are always to be understood and can only be understood against a standard of what is good, what is morally good. Otherwise, it makes no sense. 
Otherwise, the discussion will simply be that uh, right is the rule of the stronger. Uh, maybe the stronger just means I have more votes, so I'm stronger because of my votes, or maybe it's because I have more guns that I'm stronger, or maybe because I'm taller. And so I will tell you what's right simply because I have power and through my will. But that's what's exposed in political rhetoric once morality has been removed from it. Otherwise, you can tell from the way in which political things are discussed that they are inherently moral because they are always judged against that standard of what the good is. And therefore, you must ultimately address that question of what is the good. All right, here is Benedict XVI addressing the civil authorities in Milan, telling them that laws must find justification and force in natural law, which is the basis of an order in conformity with the dignity of the human person, surmounting a merely positivist understanding from which no ethical indication of any kind can be derived. Do you get that? Well, Positivist law is precisely the kind of law that I just referred to that is constructed merely upon will and force and not upon morality. It means whatever law there is, whether it's installed by a tyrant or a um, dictator, it is simply the law without any moral judgment uh, at its foundation or indeed applied to it. Thomas Aquinas it is from precepts of the natural law. The natural law is the moral law. As we said, that great truth from Plato and Socrates, our souls are all ordered to the same transcendent good, which is what makes us human beings. That's what we mean by we all have human nature. There's not one good for me, another good for my wife, a third for my oldest son, even though he sometimes thinks so. And you know, going on, there, there's not a, a separate good constituted for you. If there were, then you wouldn't be a human being and you'd be something else. There would be no common good, no common wheel. And therefore, what then would be the foundation of law, which is supposed to serve that common good? That's what he means. That's what Aquinas means, that law has its foundation in natural law, which is the good toward which our souls are ordered by nature in the way in which we're made. That's a given. We don't get to make that up. It is from the precepts of the natural law, as from general and indemonstrable principles, that the human reason needs to proceed to the more particular determination of certain matters. These particular determinations devised by human reason are called human laws provided the other essential conditions of law be observed. An ordinance of reason for the common good, an ordinance of reason for the common good, made by him who has care of the community and which is publicly promulgated. All laws, insofar as they partake of right reason, are derived from eternal law. So natural law and eternal law, they all have their same source in the transcendent good, which, of course, is God. Okay. Now, here we are finally at the doctrinal note on some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life. This is from 2003, and it's terrific. I recommend anyone uh, who's involved in public life that they read this. 
I'm going to read you a couple of uh, items from it and comment on them. Here's one. A kind of cultural relativism exists today, evident in the conceptualization and defense of an ethical pluralism. An ethical pluralism means, well, there's one good for you and one for me, and maybe you have a third good. That's ethical pluralism. Our souls aren't ordered to the same good. There's not a single standard of justice which sanctions the decadence and disintegration of reason and the principles of the natural moral law. Furthermore, it is not unusual to hear the opinion expressed in the public sphere that such ethical pluralism is the very condition of democracy. In other words, the fact that we all have separate goods mean we have to tolerate each other because there's nothing we can agree on as the common good. So it's not knowing, it's the inability to know anything which is the foundation of democracy rather than the self-evident truths which are articulated in the Declaration of Independence and implemented in the Constitution. So your freedom is based upon ignorance, not upon knowledge. That's what this means, that ethical pluralism is the very condition of democracy. Of course, that's not true. It makes democracy impossible because it denies the possibility of knowing a common good. And therefore, the public order will simply degenerate into who has the power to impose their good on you. That's why Benedict XVI and why John Paul II before him spoke of the tyranny of relativism and that there is a democratic form of the tyranny of relativism, which is just the right as the rule of the stronger under democratic guise. In other words, if there are enough of us to say marriage is between two men, uh, then we can simply do that. That's the tyranny of relativism. To say that this unborn child is not a person and take its life that is the tyranny of relativism, and that's what's being spoken of here. The history of the 20th century demonstrates that those citizens were right who recognized the falsehood of relativism, and with it the notion that there is no moral law rooted in the nature of the human person which must govern our understanding of man, the common good, and the state. Now, what's your role as a Catholic in politics today? It's to say this. It's to uphold this. However, it's not something else. Now I'm going to get to the church's role, which of course is to uphold these truths. When I came in here, by the way, I stopped in the church for just a second, and there I saw a statement from the Catholic Conference quoting Cardinal Dolan on the Supreme Court DOMA position and denouncing it for traducing the principle of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the role of the church. There it is. However, still in this doctrinal note, it says it is not the church's task, not the church's task to set forth specific political solutions. The church is not a public policy think tank to advise us as laymen particularly us as laymen in the public sphere, in the public order, or in political life, uh, what subsection B of Article A in the bill to uh, improve the water supply should be. That's not its job. The church has no special purchase 
on these prudential moral considerations. We do, if indeed it is our role in the public political life to deal with these issues. Those are the things for which we're responsible and for which we must exercise our prudential moral judgments. And if a bureaucrat at the Catholic conference gives his opinion, it's nothing more than his opinion and has no authority of the church behind it. Here is from Benedict XVI when he gave his address at Westminster, saying the role of the Catholic Church is still less to propose concrete political solutions. It is not to propose concrete political solutions which would lie altogether outside the competence of religion, not public policy, think tank solutions, specificity on particular bills, except, of course, when it violates a fundamental moral principle, such as was defied in the recent Supreme Court decisions or in laws that allow abortion. Of course, then it is exactly at that level of moral principle to step in. But let's say it, but does it have any special expertise working with those who are trying to ameliorate the evils of abortion and telling them exactly how to do it. No, it's not. You can have an opinion on that, but it's nothing more than that. And my worry is if the church spends its capital in opining on every bill which comes before Congress and appearing as witnesses, bureaucrats from the Catholic Church appearing as witnesses at every hearing in Congress, offering commentary on every bill, that it dissipates the influence on the church of the church when it comes to these huge major issues of moral principle. Now, I promised to tell you some war stories from the time in which I was involved in this work uh, myself in the Reagan administration as the president's liaison to the Catholic Church and Catholic community in the United States. That meant liaison with the Catholic Conference and also with individual bishops and cardinals in their diocese and great Catholic lay groups. I can remember an instance in the 84 campaign when photos began appearing in diocesan newspapers and Catholic papers of a smiling President Reagan standing there with a smiling John Paul II. And the left-wing Catholic press, and even just, let's say, Democrats, some Democrats got very upset with this saying, what do you, ha, there's the Reagan administration politicizing the church, trying to instrumentalize the Catholic Church to uh, win an election. Well, at that time, the spokesman, the sort of secretary of communications for John Paul II was Archbishop John Foley, who had come from Philadelphia, a very, very dear man. So he is confronted with these questions and answers this way. Considering the moral principles upon which the Pope and President Reagan agree on the protection of the inviolable right of unborn children against pornography for prayer in school and uh, for school vouchers, it is the most natural thing in the world that they should be seen together in a photograph. Well, the last thing in the world the left wing wanted to hear was that statement repeated. So every objection to those photographs immediately evaporated. 
And as you probably know, President Reagan, well before that, in 1983, did something really quite unusual for a sitting president, and that is he published an article unsolicited in the Human Life Review called Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. All lovers of Lincoln and lovers of people of principle in politics, if you haven't read Abortion and the Conscience of the Nation, this is a, a magnificent statement by then President Reagan. And also you know what he did at another time, which was quite controversial, was we showed Bernard Nathanson's The Silent Scream in the White House. And a copy of that was sent to every member of Congress. Believe me, that was the lead on the evening news of every network in the country at that time. Done on Lincoln's birthday, appropriately enough. Now, there were some problems that arose that I think can illustrate the difficulties if the bureaucracy of the church in an institution such as the Catholic Conference behaves in this public policy role, which is not necessarily appropriate to the church. Aside from dealing with Catholic issues, I also did a lot of work on Central America, the Central American Outreach Working Group for the White House. That meant I familiarized myself with tremendous detail with what was happening to the church in Nicaragua under the Sandinistas. Uh, and I heard firsthand about the persecution of the church there. Of course, the Reagan administration was dead set against the Sandinistas for a number of reasons. They were cat's paw for the Soviet Union in Central America, but also for what they were doing to the Mosquito Indians and, of course, what they were doing to the Catholic Church. I had a couple of meetings with uh, Cardinal Obando y Bravo of Managua, hearing from him and other priests details of this persecution against the church. And I said, Your Eminence, how is it that your brother bishops in the United States are not speaking out on this? He said they must not be getting their mail. This wasn't uniform, by the way. I remember Bishop Rene Gracida from Texas actually came to the White House and spoke on a White House platform denouncing the Sandinistas for their persecution of the church there. But I can tell you in excruciatingly detail, the opposition of the Catholic Conference staff to the president's policy in Nicaragua. And we would bring members of the staff in for meetings with the Assistant Secretary for Latin America, with National Security Council, and I would hear a line over and over and over and over again, uh, under no circumstances is it legitimate to use force. Well, what about if this happens? No, that's, you can't do that. Well, what if they do this and it leaves no, under no circumstances? I've studied just war teaching. That is not a teaching of the church. It's really not a teaching of the church that force is not allowable under any circumstances. And it was impossible to move this particular priest who played a key role in the uh, Catholic Conference staff on this particular issue. We had the president of the Central American Bishops Conference up to Washington, and he met privately with the president. He was extremely aware of what was happening, obviously, because he was right on the border with Nicaragua. So I took him in to meet President Reagan. 
You know, I could then see the particular qualities of, of President Reagan as a, he, he was a, one of the few true Christian gentlemen I've ever met in my life. The dear Archbishop was practically hyperventilating when we were getting ready to go in because it's a pretty big deal to just have a one-on-one -on -one with the president. Within seconds, he was completely relaxed in the armchair across from the president who was thanking him for taking his time to come and share his thoughts on Central America. And they began they were talking like two old friends, just like that. And without uh, going into details, I oughtn't. They had a very frank discussion in which the archbishop said, Mr. President, you must try this diplomacy politics. If that doesn't work, you need to do this. If that doesn't work, try this. And in the end, you must be ready to do this. And let us say he did not exclude the use of force. Now, I heard through the grapevine after that meeting that there were some very upset staffers at the Catholic conference with me. Riley sneaking bishops in the country to meet with the president as if this man didn't have a perfect right to come to Washington and arrange his own schedule. We did have a meeting with the president and the members of the executive committee of the Catholic Conference. I showed you the picture last week, passed it around. So there was, there was Cardinal O'Connor and Cardinal Kroll and Cardinal Bernadine, et cetera, et cetera. And so a full schedule of briefings on all the issues on which they wished to hear, which included immigration, of course it included abortion, pornography, school prayer, and of course uh, foreign policy issues regarded to the Soviet Union. And of course the top people in the administration were there to brief the cardinals and bishops, and the president had lunch with them. So this was an attempt to communicate, to exchange at the highest level these concerns. What happens after this meeting? And believe me, to set something up like this is a tricky thing to do. After the meeting, on the steps in front of the West Wing, the press is mobbed, they're waiting. And the president of the Bishops' Conference at that time steps out to the microphone and unfolds a piece of paper written by the conference staff before any of the meetings had taken place and reads the statement as a reaction to the meetings that had just happened. And as you can imagine, it was critical. So he's reading a statement in reaction to an event that had not yet taken place. In other words, it was a setup. And some of the members of the hierarchy present were extremely embarrassed by this and tried to get to the microphone and make some ameliorating remarks. And then in the White House later that day, we were fielding some calls from, I won't name the cardinals, who said how embarrassed they were and how they had disagreed with what was done and even what was said. I think that makes my point. I, uh, was, that, you know, was that appropriate? There was a certain point at which I have to confess, we, we simply stopped working with members of the staff over there because we saw it wasn't really a fruitful exercise. Then, of course, there was a huge amount of activity over the bishop's pastoral letter on war and peace, which I, as a layman, became involved in. Uh, we formed an American Catholic Committee with Michael Novak and some notable Catholic thinkers to think through the just war teaching in respect to the challenge we were faced with the Soviet Union and the use of nuclear weapons and the strategy in regard to that. 
We published a book on it, Justice and War in the Nuclear Age. One of the contributors was at that time Bishop O'Connor when he was the head of the military ordinariate. Father Shaw from Georgetown, we had some great strategic thinkers. The Bishop's Conference meets to, to go over the letter. I went to the Capitol Hilton and personally stuffed a pre-publication copy of the book in, in the mailbox of every bishop there. It didn't do a whole lot of good. Uh, the letter is issued. Uh, like any document of its kind, it was obviously the product of compromise. But it was not, um, it was, I, I don't think, the, the reiteration of just war principles in the document was perfectly fine, of course. And that is the thing on which the church speaks with authority. But then the prudential moral judgments about the strategies involved in regard to the Soviet Union were not so fine. And particularly when they came into the uh, area of nuclear weapons. Now, just to give you just a quick note on this, the mutual assured destruction, as you know, used to be the nuclear strategy of the United States. The idea being that if the Soviet Union launched against us, it didn't matter what they were aiming for. Our immediate response would be to launch nuclear weapons against, say, their 10, 12 largest cities. Not aimed at their weapons, aimed at their populations. So our retaliatory policy is that we're going to kill tens of millions of your citizens. That is, is inherently corrupt a strategic doctrine as one could possibly imagine. Violates every tenet of the just war teaching. And that was precisely what the Reagan administration then endeavored to change. It eliminated mutual assured destruction, which, by the way, depended on what they called blockbuster nuclear weapons that were extremely dirty. The idea was to spread the radiation as far as possible to kill as many people as possible. And then what came into uh, the jargon as counter-force nuclear strategy was a new kind of nuclear weapon, highly accurate, much smaller, uh, and much more relatively clean with a tiny radius of radiation that was aimed to hit weapons in their hardened sites. Bunker busters, not city block busters. So it was a counterforce. In other words, aim the weapons against their weapons, not against their people. It's pretty basic just war teaching, right? Well, wouldn't you think that would be one of the things to be acknowledged and remarked upon in, in such a, a pastoral letter as this. You would think so. But it was indeed very confused in that respect. And then John Paul II, when it gets to the Pope level, Pope's level, he makes a clarifying statement that given the nature of the conflict with the Soviet Union and what is at stake in it, the use of nuclear weapons is a deterrent in, a, in this. He didn't use the counterforce language, but it, that is what he meant, is legitimate. So there, there you go with another example of this kind. Um, and, and here is my concern. How productive is it for the church to be using its capital, its political, public capital, in this way, on issues in which it has no particular charism, it's just another public policy voice in the political sphere. If it's doing that, does that not in some, 
extent dissipate the authority of the church in dealing with the issues on which it really needs to be heard. And that's what I want to move into right now. Now, have you ever heard of the Americanism, you know, as a heresy, Catholic Americanism, that rather than Catholicizing America, we're Americanizing Catholicism? This was a concern at the end of the 19th century and certainly the beginning of the 20th century, someone expressed in an encyclical of Pope Leo XIII. My point is not to address the controversy over Americanism, but to get to this statement, because I think it applies to some of the problems we have today. Here's what Leo XIII said, quote, let it be far from anyone's mind to suppress for any reason any doctrine that has been handed down. Let it be far from anyone's mind to suppress for any reason any doctrine that has been handed down. Such a policy would tend rather to separate Catholics from the church than to bring in those who differ, unquote. Can you think of any doctrines of the church, maybe suppression is too strong a word, but that haven't been given sufficient attention in catechesis and in teaching and in preaching? Why is it today that one out of three Catholics leaves? Why are they separating from the church? Let me suggest one particular issue since it pertains to the statement issued on the same-sex marriage ruling from the Supreme Court. And this is from Cardinal Dolan, president of the U.S. Bishops Conference. In an interview in the Wall Street Journal last year, quote, we have grown hoarse saying this is not about contraception, this is about political freedom. Talking about the HHS mandate. And then Cardinal Dolan brought up the teaching of the church on contraception and flatly stated that the bishops haven't taught it since the 1960s. Cardinal Dolan, the president of the Catholic Conference, saying this. The flashpoint, the archbishop said, was humane vitae. As you know, Paul VI's encyclical reasserting the church's teaching on sex, marriage, and reproduction, including the opposition to contraception. So here's Cardinal Dolan. It brought such a tsunami of dissent, departure, disapproval of the church, that I think most of us, and I'm using the first person plural intentionally, including myself, kind of subconsciously said, whoa, we'd better never talk about that because it's just too hot to handle. We forfeited the chance to be a coherent moral voice when it comes to one of the most burning issues of the day." Unquote. As he said elsewhere, when it came to the issue of contraception, we got laryngitis. There was polling issued over the weekend by age group, particularly focusing on young Catholics, simply illustrating how large the majority amongst these young Catholics is in support of same-sex marriage. What happened there? I think instead of teaching on nuclear strategic doctrine, some failure in catechesis here took place that have left us in these straits. And now, of course, we are very vulnerable how could it be that 25% of this country is Catholic and we have been unable to affect the public realm 
to the extent to which we should be able. By the way, time for some good news. <laughs> Who said the abortion issue was lost? What happened here the other week in Fairfax? The largest abortion provider in Virginia was shut down. God bless all the people who were on the sidewalk with their rosaries for all that time until this happened. Look at the state legislation that has taken place in Kansas and uh, half a dozen states in Texas to bring these restrictions on abortion. Who would have thought 40 years, all of this time, just how many people would have signed that off as a lost cause? It's not a lost cause. And it's because people did not lose faith in the face of this abomination against the sacredness of human life. So there, there always is hope so long as we don't give up. And the same obtains on this issue of same-sex marriage. Now I have another hour-long talk prepared <laughs> on that which could take you through all of the um, premises of the Supreme Court decisions from Griswold versus Connecticut to our dear Justice Kennedy the other day. Everyone's very frightened I'm going to do that. So I, <laughs> I won't. Instead of that, I'm going to read you this prescient statement from the Ratzinger Report. See, these principles are, once you, you adopt a principle, the consequences from the principle are more or less inevitable. And that certainly is the truth in respect to contraception. As soon as you divorce sex from diapers, you're done. There, there is really no bulwark from that divorce through to same-sex marriage. I wrote 18,000 words on that particular point in the constitutional issue in this book from Ignatius, and I'm going to read it to you tonight. <laughs> no, I promised. This, this is, here it is from the brilliant Benedict XVI, the greatest defender of reason not in, I was going to say in the West, in the world. He saw this back in the 80s. Speaking of the consequences of sexuality, which is no longer linked to motherhood and to procreation, it logically follows from this that every form of sexuality is equivalent and therefore of equal worth. Once you separate sex from diapers, inevitably you introduce an equivalence of every form of sexuality. Remember President Obama's latest inauguration speech, every, every love is equal? That's how he could say that, because he bought into the first part of this. He appeared, by the way, the first president ever to do so at the Planned Parenthood Convention. Did you read that? Planned Parenthood, of course, is the largest purveyor of death through abortion in this country. And he had the nerve to stand there and say, God bless Planned Parenthood. This man who doesn't believe there are any absolute truths. Okay. It logically follows from this that every form of sexuality is equivalent and therefore of equal worth. 
no longer having an objective reason to justify it, sex seeks the subjective reason in the gratification of the desire in the most satisfying answer for the individual to the instincts no longer subject to rational restraints. Everyone is free to give to his personal libido the content suitable for himself. Hence, it naturally follows that all forms of sexual gratification are transformed into the rights of the individual. Thus, to cite an especially current example, homosexuality becomes an inalienable right. Given the aforementioned premises, how can one deny it? On the contrary, its full recognition appears to be an aspect of human liberation. There are other consequences of this uprooting of the human person in the depth of his nature. Fecundity separated from marriage based on a lifelong fidelity turns from a blessing, as it was understood in every culture, into its opposite. That is to say, a threat to the free development of the individual's right to happiness. Thus, abortion, institutionalized, free, and socially guaranteed, becomes another right, another form of liberation. Can't say he didn't see it coming. Melanie, you're not as good with the signs as Deacon Sabatino is. (laughs) But I have a suspicion that, are we near the, uh, I'm fine? Okay, the Bowers versus Hardwick decision. (laughs) According to right reason. Yes. Okay, okay. You know, I've got a wonderful section here on how Obama evolved into support of same-sex marriage from his opposition to it as a Christian into his endorsement of it. And, of course, Biden's, too. Okay, I'm going, to th- I'm going to tell you one other thing. We saw a, a, a hint of this in the vice presidential debate between Congressman Ryan and Vice President Biden when it came to the pro-life issue. There was a preview of this years earlier in the Reagan administration. I was sent to some network, I can't remember what it was, to be a live commentator on the famous speech that Governor Cuomo of New York at that time, father of the current person in that position, uh, who was giving his talk at Notre Dame. He was giving his version of the church, you know, in, in, in the role of politics. And so I was one commentator. Guess who the other commentator was? Jerry Brown. <laughs> former seminarian. So Governor Cuomo gives this speech in which he says that he cannot, as a Catholic, come to the defense of unborn human life because that would be imposing his beliefs upon others, his Catholic beliefs that abortion is wrong, and he can't do that. Uh, That would be wrong. So I was asked, uh, it was my turn first, and I did something I always wanted to do, They said, what did you think? And I said, well, Governor Cuomo's statement reminded me of the statement by St. Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons when he says, when a statesman forsakes his private conscience for the sake of his public duty, he leads leads the state into chaos. When he forsakes his private conscience, 
he leads this to disaster. And I said, this is what Governor Cuomo has just done, saying that as a Catholic, I cannot come to the defense of innocent human life. When in fact, one has one's inalienable right to life, not by virtue of being a Catholic, but by virtue of being a human being. How dare he say that as a Catholic, I am disabled from speaking on the inalienable right to human life. It's there in the Declaration of Independence, pal. Was that a Catholic document? It was signed by a Catholic, we're all happy to say. But uh, talk about reading yourself out of the public sphere. Talk about self-marginalization. And there again in this, Biden tried to pull the same thing with Ryan. Ryan, of course, is a Catholic and a guy deeply immersed in Catholic social teaching. And once again, Biden tried to pull this nonsense that, well, as a Catholic, I can't impose my, well, President Biden, you don't have your right to life because you're a Catholic. You're a human being. Ryan got so far in this, but not quite far enough to, to nail it and to shut Biden up on that subject and to stop distorting church teaching. In every one of these documents, by the way, it makes clear that the Catholic in public life is supporting the moral law, which is the natural law, which has its source in divine law. And so we cannot be shut up on these issues. The natural law obtains to everyone. The right to life obtains to everyone. The evil of pornography affects everyone. If you're a non-Catholic or you're an atheist, it still will destroy your life and probably that of your family. You went straight to zero, Melanie. I, you didn't you give me the 10-minute or the five-minute warning. Okay, I'm going to close with Father Shaw's diag diagnosis. Dear Father Shaw from Georgetown, this great, great Jesuit who embodies everything that order once was when it was great. We would like to free ourselves from nature in order to become what we want to be. And what we want to be must logically eliminate any sign that something in us is better made than what we ourselves could conjure up. We want to be our own creators. We don't want to be what was created and given by God because within us we have the image of God. And that constricts some of the things we want to do. That's the moral natural law. This result is why so much of our contemporary life is taken up with ways of life that deny marriage, children, and seek to glorify ways of life that are intrinsically opposed to them. To achieve this latter goal of complete independence from God, we must lie to ourselves about what we are. No one, Plato said, wants a lie in his soul about the most important things, a lie about what is. But if we do want to replace God with our own definition of ourselves, we must lie to ourselves, deceive ourselves about what we are. We must seek ourselves independently of what we ought to be. If we succeed in this endeavor, we will make ourselves into monsters and oddities, unquote. Well, we in the church, we in the church, with the church, stand together against this.
And this is the role of the church in politics today. We are going to be the new Skellig Rocks of the 21st century. We are going to fight for and preserve these truths of our very nature given to us by God. We're not alive at this particular moment in time and history by mistake. God knew from eternity that he was going to place each of us here and now facing this particular challenge in our lives and in our families. So there's nothing accidental, there's nothing to mourn about this. This is providential. And therefore we have to react in, in God's grace and with his prayer to stand for the truth uh, he being, of course, the truth. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Riley. You're hard on me, by the way. <laughs> by the way, I think it speaks very highly of you. Normally, when we have a multiple-part series, we lose a few people on the second week, right? I had to keep putting out more chairs. <laughs> God bless you guys for coming out. As you know, we run a pretty tight, brief Q&A. So, all right, who's got a question? One in the back. Could you comment on the role, not just of broadcasting, but of explicitly religious broadcasting by the government of the United States of America into the Soviet Union, its role in undermining communism there? Well, thank you for that question, because it's, it's an area in which I worked at the Voice of America and the U.S. Information Agency. Um, we have a lot to be proud of in terms of the government broadcasting to what used to be known as the captive nations by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty to the Soviet Union, and then the Voice of America in general. There was religious broadcasting. I knew well the Russian Orthodox priest who used to broadcast into the Soviet Union. And, of course, our job was to present and explain the principles of the United States, including freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and examples thereof in, in, in the life of this country at that time. And uh, it, it was wonderful. It was powerful. I'm very sorry to say that the effect of our public diplomacy is now in the reverse direction. And uh, Gay Pride Day, Gay Pride Month is celebrated in our embassies abroad, officially, uh, mandatorily. And uh, you can imagine how many friends that makes us in the Muslim world and elsewhere. Um, so the light from the city on the hill is casting some very dark shadows as a result of the denial of some of our founding principles. Professor uh, Riley, uh, you wrote some very good articles about the homosexual question and brought out the, the importance of the good of the marriage between a man and woman and the good of society. But there's also the question of the good of the people um, with the homosexual condition, and that good is not really being addressed. They really need um, to address a, a psychological maturity um, question that eroticism does not address. Do you think it is going to be possible to, to communicate that our, our love for, for these people uh, consists of trying to help them to, to address their real needs? Well, I, I, I thank you for that question. And for your kind remarks, I think it's mandatory and it's a requirement of charity. Um, the worst thing you could possibly do is celebrate someone's homosexuality with them, to join in the celebration, which means to simply join in the lie 
and in the rationalization that they're using for their sexual misbehavior. I always use the analogy uh, with alcoholism, as I've known some pretty committed alcoholics in my life. Uh, would it be an act of charity to celebrate their alcoholism with them? Uh, or to institute an alcoholism pride day? To encourage it? Uh, to endorse it? To embrace it? No, because it's self-destructive. It will harm them. Uh, it will kill them eventually unless they can gain control over themselves. Likewise, in respect to, to love, uh, love is different depending on the subject and the object of the love. I like to ridicule Biden because he said, it's all a matter of who you love. I said, well, that is, it's grammatically incorrect. <laughs> you have two subjects without an object, which is the problem with same-sex marriage. It's, just, <laughs> it's whom do you love? Whom do you love? Um, the love of a parent for a child the love between a brother and a sister, the love between friends, all of these are different. And to sexualize them would be a tremendous misunderstanding of the nature of that love. The love between a man and a woman in a marriage is unique because only it is unitive and procreative. Only it. Only it can be unitive Otherwise, the pieces don't fit. Only it can be procreative. And by its nature, it's both of those all the time, together. So to say that, and what you could say is that sex outside of the marital commitment always harms those who are engaged in it, whether it's heterosexual or it's homosexual. Love seeks the perfection of the loved one, always. Now, if you're engaged, in, if you have sexualized a relationship inappropriately, as it is not spousal, the love between two men cannot be spousal, the love between a parent and a child cannot be spousal, all of those things. There's obvious but necessary to say because of our Supreme Court. So since they are not spousal by their nature, to sexualize them is in itself a, a tremendous moral disorder and misuse. You know, when I talk about natural law, it's so evident in our bodies. Does anyone have any doubt what our eyes are for? And if you have an astigmatism, uh, that there's something wrong with your eye, and your optometrist knows how to correct it, so, and then you know it's been fixed when you can see again. We know what our hands are for, our nose, our ears. You don't stick things in your ears, because it could, you know, there are all kinds of basic... But once you get below the waist, which, well, what's that for? Who could it? What? No one seems to know. <laughs> for what purpose might we possess these organs? Who could say? Well, then let's use them for, you know, whatever we want to. I mean, come on, this is, this is insane. And it's very harmful, and it is, it is destructive. Well before AIDS, you know, the homosexual lifestyle was very deleterious and there was a much shorter life expectancy uh, for homosexuals before this terrible AIDS epidemic arose. I've known many homosexuals. I've worked in the arts for 30 years. In my misspent youth, I was an actor in New York. So believe me, I know 
I know the homosexual underworld. I was in plays where the majority of the cast was homosexual. I left one regional theater after a season where the very lovely woman who was the publicity director said, Bob, you're a good actor. It's too bad you're not a homosexual. <laughs> you know, I knew, the, I knew the rules of the game. I mean, that's, the, that's why I was so offended when they allowed open homosexuality in the military because I know exactly what's going to happen. I know how that subculture works when it's allowed to surface with its own rules. I know what happens. But also, I would never have told many of the homosexuals I knew, this is great. Good for you. I'm so happy you finally discovered yourself as a homosexual. So I, I would say to one who was my friend, I'm sorry, what you're doing is wrong. This is wrong. No, no, Bob, it's just a form of entertainment. I said, no, it's going to destroy you. It's going to harm you. And he was dead. He, he died of AIDS. Even when I was in college, before I really understood this kind of stuff, I was debating my senior year, walking along with a classmate. And he was clearly a moral relativist. And I, we got down to the basic principle of non-contradiction, that a thing cannot be and not be, cannot be and not be in the same time, same place, same way. Unless you agree to the principle of non-contradiction, you really can't have a conversation. He said, well, I'm not so sure that's, someday we may find that's not quite, you know, there could be some other, and I said, well, the con you know, our conversation's over. We can't, we can't have a conversation. I didn't know at the time he was homosexual. While still a young man, he died of AIDS. He denied the principle of non-contradiction, and the principle of non-contradiction denied him. That's what happened. It would not be an act of charity to say to him, Accept yourself, celebrate it. It would be an act of charity to point out how destructive to him and his partner or partners this would be. And while there may be some people disposed to this particular moral disorder, whether they're congenitally disposed or whether they've acquired this disposal, whatever it is, we're all disposed to some form of moral disorder or not. At least some Irishmen are. I've heard some of them. <laughs> Anger, alcohol, other problems. So we're all disordered. It's not as if there's something particularly wrong. Well, I mean, it is a serious, serious cross to bear for these people. It's a very serious, tough, tough thing. But the way out of it is, is the way of Father John Harden, the great Jesuit who started the courage groups and the ones who work with homosexuals that way, to live, uh, you know, if they cannot be reoriented, to heterosexual life, and there is a high success ratio amongst homosexuals who wish to do that. Not all of them, but a significant amount of them. But even if they can't, that a chaste life is possible. Now, why would that be any harder than it is for any heterosexual single person who's also supposed to live a chaste life? Husbands and wives are called to live chaste lives of fidelity. The political principle is chastity because it's the principle of family. And when you allow it to be violated, you threaten your whole political order. That's in the first part of the book. It'll be out next year. Sorry. <laughs> in the current administration, is there a liaison to the Catholic Church and the Catholic people? If so, who is that? And how's that person doing? <laughs> Thank you.
I don't know. I really don't know, and uh, I can't, I can't, sorry, I can't answer that question. I mean, what would they have to talk about? I was shown a letter by someone on Capitol Hill from a bishop ahead of one of the conferences on, you know, social justice, whichever one it was at the conference, that was condemning a budget reconciliation put forth by Congressman Ryan, you know, one of the real Catholics in Congress who's immersed in Catholic social teaching, who's, who's dedicated to ameliorating poverty, saying it was immoral. What, what business did he have of, I mean, he knows the budget better than Congressman Ryan. I, maybe he was in touch with the liaison from the Obama administration, <laughs> but I don't know. What should a Catholic do when uh, having to vote with two candidates who are basically, you're having to vote for the lesser of two evils? It's mandatory to always choose the lesser of two evils. <laughs> I don't think there's much Probably dispute about that. as opposed to abstaining or doing a write-in or that sort of thing. Well, I can tell you in political life, you are often presented with a selection of bad things and you, and, and you have to choose and you, you must choose the lesser evil. That's why I think the church is very clear on the question of abortion to support those who are doing something to ameliorate the evil from it. They might be 100% pro-life, but they will agree on imposing health requirements on the abortion clinics that will restrict their activities, or they will put a, uh, a trimester limit on abortions or something like that. And so in a, in a case like that, though abortion is a grave evil, it is morally obligatory to vote for the lesser of it to try to ameliorate that evil without conceding in any way the principle that it is evil. Regarding the HHS mandate, it would seem to me that the way the church is handling this, Cardinal Dolan, based on what you say, would be a proper role in the church today. And my question would be then, should the government decide to pursue, not basically, not back off of where the government is, and should the church not back off from its position, which I would hope the church would not do, would do you see that the government would in fact enforce these regulations, because that's what it is, to the extent of seizing, basically, shutting down Catholic hospitals, shutting down Catholic colleges, shutting down Catholic schools, shutting down Catholic jobs or organizations run by Catholics to enforce this mandate. Now, that's, just as an opinion, how far do you think that's a very, very, that? very good question. We are at the Thomas More moment. And if you remember last week, I read a section from Bishop Luverde's magnificent letter that was read from all the pulpits, uh, co-signed with the Bishop of Richmond to all, all the Virginia dioceses, saying we cannot and we will not comply with this law. But the church is uh, very vulnerable here because, as you may know, Catholic Charities receives two-thirds of its funding from the government. Catholic Relief Services receives two-thirds of its funding from the federal government. That gives some leverage to the federal government. It's a compliment to the church in a way because they know the church as a charitable institution is going to do more for a dollar than other civic institutions. But it also puts it in this very uncomfortable situation now that it is forcing through this mandate 
You can remember one thing, and this is a line from the great Catholic apologist Peter Kreft. The first bishop to take a government grant was Judas. <laughs> so that this, this is now, um, this is the time of truth. Um, I, I think that this government is going to force the moment and it uh, will depend on the political price it has to pay to do it. And the political price it has to pay to do it will depend on us. That's our role in politics uh, today, to, to raise the price for them to attempt to force this on us. And of course, it is the job of our bishops and our pastors to hold up their end of this deal. So we'll see. This is the moment of truth. Oremos. Thank you so much, oh, Professor Riley. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.